So we are in the middle of chapter 39. And in order to get to where we are today, I think it's important to stop and look at the bigger picture of everything because sometimes we can get lost in the details and forget the bigger journey, the bigger picture here. And the way Rabbi Steinlaus puts it in his book, Opening the Tanya, the Tanya trains us to see problems at a meta level. It trains us to pull ourselves out of our small individual experience. I shouldn't call it small, but our personal individual experience and raise ourselves up higher to see the source root of all these problems. What is the source of all the problems? It's the struggle between good and evil. And every problem that we encounter asks us to see the root of this problem and see how this is a struggle between good and evil. Now, that's Tanya in general. So going back to what I said, I just want to repeat this again. The Tanya trains us to see problems at a meta level. That every single challenge that is encountered in this world is really an indication, an expression of the greater struggle between the cosmic good and evil. And the altar was training us to look at everything through this lens. Starting off from chapter 35, we started to see the importance, the primary importance of deed. And we really started from chapter 36, we started to look at the reason why this world was created. And it was so that Hashem can have a home in the lower realms, which hide him and do not naturally yield to their core. Hashem created concealment. There is a world which does not see him, does not recognize him. And we, the created beings, are to break through that barrier and come to reveal the truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem. So even the struggle between good and evil is part of a larger problem or part of a larger picture. That struggle is part of the picture of making this world a home for Hashem. So starting from chapter 35, we start to look at the primary importance of physical deed. That physical deed trumps everything. Love and fear could be very high spiritual emotions, but if someone has love and fear without any action, it's not a mitzvah. If someone has kavana, has intention, without action, without mitzvah, it's not a mitzvah. If someone does a mitzvah and they don't have kavana, it's still a mitzvah. But now, starting from chapter 38 and now in chapter 39, the altar is bringing us to the cognition, the awareness of the lofty importance of kavana. True, it's not what makes the mitzvah the mitzvah. On the other hand, it's what reveals the mitzvah's inner nature. Because of love and fear, because of the intention that we have when we do the mitzvah, the mitzvah's divine essence becomes manifested and it gets propelled to the higher world where it becomes incorporated within the 10 divine sifirot. And over there, it shines as it is. You can see that the mitzvah is truly divine. Without kavana, the mitzvah is still inherently holy, but it remains hidden. We cannot see how this is truly a divine act. And our awareness of this impacts our everyday behavior. 
what makes all these ideas practical, and that's what Regina asked last week, like, Regina said, well, how is this practical? Remind me again how this is practical. How it's practical is when you know there's a difference, you act differently. So when you know, it makes a difference. And it's like, you know, the, the Hungarian doctor Ignat Zemmelweis. I don't know if I pronounced his name correctly, but he's the guy who discovered that you need to wash your hands with chlorine before you deliver babies because that makes a very big difference. Mothers were sadly passing away at alarmingly high rates from childbirth fever, and he couldn't figure out the connection, but he saw that there was a huge difference. He didn't know why. He saw there was a huge difference when they wash hands before they deliver the babies. He was uh, confined to an insane asylum by his colleagues, and nobody took his message seriously. Most people did not. He couldn't prove why it is that this is the case. And they just dismissed him because he dared to defy or to contradict common medical practice. When we get to hear that there's a difference and we get to hear from an expert who sees things from a spiritual standpoint, because remember, Figuring out pathology and how germs really are dangerous and people need to wash their hands before they deliver a baby, that could be done with a microscope. But having, getting to see what's the spiritual difference between doing a mitzvah with kavana and without kavana, that needs to be a tradition handed down from Hashem. This is Kabbalah handed down generation after generation Avraham Avinu wrote the book of Yitzhira. These are people who are privy to the higher realms and sharing this with us. And when I say us, the us has expanded greatly over the generations. Us used to mean a small elite group of people. Only they were privy to these secrets of Kabbalah. In order to study Kabbalah, you had to have be proficient in all other areas of Torah. And then you were allowed to study these deep secrets. As the world progresses and comes to the ultimate fulfillment of Hashem's dream, the coming of Mashiach may be speedily in our days, this knowledge has become not a luxury, a necessity. And the Arizal said, mitzvah legalis zeis ha It is a mitzvah to reveal this wisdom. And that's what the Alter Rebbe is doing in Tanya. He's revealing this wisdom to us. And he says, I want you to know for certain Know for certain that a mitzvah that is done with kavana gets propelled to the higher worlds. It could be just an instinctive kavana. It means you're not feeling these emotions palpably in your heart. It's not a full-on fiery feeling, but you have a strong conviction in your mind and a deep resonance in your heart that you love Hashem, that you're in awe of Him, and at this space, you're running to do a mitzvah. That's kavana, and that propels your mitzvah out of this world into the higher worlds where it becomes incorporated within the ten sefirot, becoming one with Hashem himself. And then if a person has a higher level of kavana, where they think about Hashem, they meditate upon his greatness, and suddenly they're in such awe of him, and they have palpable emotions of love and thirst to cleave to him, and out of this space of yearning, they wanted to attach and they did a mitzvah, that propels a mitzvah to a higher world, to the world of Bria. But whichever world it gets propelled to, once it gets propelled and absorbed within the ten divines, if he wrote, it always becomes one with Hashem himself. And that's what the altar is telling us. He says, know this for certain, because if we really think about it, we know it for certain, it impacts our everyday behavior. We're going to do things differently. We're going to take the time to think about Hashem. We're going to take the time to have an awareness. 
Why am I doing this mitzvah? I'm doing this mitzvah out of love for Hashem. That's my nature as a Jew. That's my deep inner core. I want to connect. This is how to connect. And I'm going to do it. Having that awareness makes all the difference. When we know that having that awareness makes all the difference, we're going to act differently. So up until now, we looked at different levels of mitzvah with kavana, and the Alter Rebbe wanted us to know for certain that if you do a mitzvah with kavana, if you study Torah with kavana, it's going to get propelled to the higher world where its true nature is going to shine. And the amazing thing is that mitzvah is the essence of Hashem. A soul cannot touch it in the higher world because if it were revealed to Hashem's true essence, the soul would no longer be. What does the soul enjoy in the higher world? It joins, enjoins the radiance of the essence of Hashem, i.e. the radiance of their own mitzvah. The essence to essence experience is only when Mashiach comes. Until then, in the higher world, there is no essence to essence because it's impossible. Do you know where there's essence to essence? Right here in this world. Because we're so blind, because we are enclosed in a physical body that completely obscures the divine, we have no idea what we're doing, we can touch the essence of Hashem, and that's by doing a mitzvah. This mitzvah is essence to essence. A soul can't touch it in the next world. It only basks in its radiance. Here we have that experience of essence. So having looked at the importance of kavana, now we're going to look at somebody who does a mitzvah not with kavana, meaning they don't have the intent of I'm doing this because I love Hashem and I want to connect to Him. I'm doing this because I'm afraid of rebelling against Him. On the other hand, they don't have an opposite intention. They don't have a self-serving intention. They're not doing this because I want fame. I want greatness. There's something in it for me. There's no bad intention, but there's also no for its sake intention. So what happens to that mitzvah? Like logically, we would think a mitzvah, Torah study is inherently holy. If there were no bad intentions attached to it, it should be able to soar upwards. And the author is going to tell us that that's not the case. If a person just is acting out of habit, their mitzvah does not get propelled upwards. So let's let's look inside. I have 19 pages in my booklet, so I'm on page 14. If you have 22 pages in your booklet, then I think you're on page 15 or 16. Okay, the Altarabba now proceeds to amplify his previous statement. The high new, so the previous statement is, he quotes from the Zaihar, Without Fear and love, it does not fly upward. And it cannot rise to stand before Hashem. So this applies even if a person doesn't have any negative intention. This inability of one's divine service to ascend to the Sifirot applies not only where one's motive for engaging in Torah and mitzvot is actually shalai lishma, not for its own sake, meaning for some ulterior motive, heaven forbid, in which case one is actually serving himself, not Hashem, and his service surely cannot ascend to stand before Hashem. Ela kemaisha kasov mitzvas anashim milumada. It applies even if, as the verse describes it, their fear of me was like commandments of men done by rote. So the Navi Yeshaya is as if complaining about the Jewish people. 
he's saying a prophecy, how Hashem is speaking, complaining, as it were, the way they're serving him. And he says, With their mouth and with their lips, they honor me, but with their heart, they draw far away from me. And their fear of me has become a command of people, which has been taught. So at this point, the way they practice Judaism is by rote. I'm habituated. This is the way I do it. How did they get this habit? Al-Turba explains. Perush machmas hergel shehorgel mikatanusai. Meaning that one serves God out of a habit acquired in his youth. Shehirgilai aviv virabai lirai es Hashem ula avdai. Having been trained and taught by his father and teacher, to fear Hashem and to serve Him. So this is someone who was trained from youth, fear Hashem, and to serve Him. This is habit. He's serving Hashem out of habit. He's serving Hashem out of habit. It does not rise above. It's very good to get into the habit of serving, but you have to remember, we have to progress. It's like that joke of the lady who's hoping to get the promotion. She's at the job for 20 years and her colleague is at the job for only three years. And who gets the promotion? Her colleague. And she is really upset. So she tries to calm down. She goes to her boss. She tries to speak politely. And she says, does this make any sense? I'm here for 20 years. I have 20 years of experience. And my colleague is only here for three years. Why did he get the promotion and not me? And her boss said, oh, that's not correct. You're here for 20 years, but you don't have 20 years of experience. You have one year of experience 20 times over. That should not be our experience of Yiddishkeit. We're supposed to be progressing. And yes, it's spiral. It's circular. We come around, but we're getting higher and higher. So we have to keep making progress. And if somebody is serving Hashem simply out of habit, that isn't going to cut it. Now, let's stop over here and we're going to kind of look at some issues involved in these few sentences of the Alter Rebbe so we get a better picture of what's going on. First of all, the Alter Rebbe is saying here that their fear of me was like mitzvahs of men done by row, which means that they do fear Hashem. He's quoting the Navi. These are people who are trained not just to act. The Navi didn't say they are acting like somebody who acted, who was trained to act out of row. No, their fear of me. There actually is a fear here. And it's done out of habit. So what is this fear? And the Rebbe speaks about it. And the Rebbe references to two halachas in Rambam Hilchas Shura. And in both of these halachas, the Rambam is talking about the proper way to raise children, the proper way to train and educate people. And he said the proper way of service is not to serve because someone wants to get a reward and not to serve because someone is afraid that they're going to be punished. Somebody who serves for these motives is considered someone who is Isaac Shalai Lishma, involved in this, not for its own sake. Nevertheless, when we train, the, the proper way is to serve only for Hashem. Nevertheless, when we train people who are first starting out in their education, we can't train them that way. We have to start off first to fear. And once their mind expands, then slowly, slowly we reveal them this truth 
that the proper way of serving Hashem is just for the sake of serving Him. Does it start out as fear? It starts out as fear. Is that the ultimate way of this kind of fear? And actually, fear of Hashem is not fear of punishment. Fear of Hashem is fear of rebelling against Him. Like, think about the way you're going to act differently if someone prominent is in the room. When you're afraid of them, are you afraid that they're going to hit you with a baseball bat? That's not why you're acting differently. The fear is fear of displeasing them. Or in the case of a king, fear of rebelling against them. The fear of Hashem is not fear of punishment. It's fear of rebelling against Him. And Hashem wants us to serve Him in a way that we're not afraid of the punishment, we're afraid of the sin itself. The Magad of Mezrich, and this was the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe quotes this in a mimer, he speaks about the verse where Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, And now, Jewish people, what does Hashem ask of you but to fear Hashem? And the Magid stops on the word to fear Hashem your God. And he explains that Hashem is saying, Jewish people, you know what I want of you? I want your fear to be like my fear. What does Hashem fear? And the Magid gives an example. He says like this, Hashem is afraid of the sin, but people are naturally afraid of the punishment. And he gives an example. He said, a father warns his child. He says, don't run around barefoot because you run around barefoot, you're going to get a foreign object stuck in your foot. And that could be very dangerous. That can cause infection and whatever. So the child, of course, doesn't listen, runs around barefoot. And lo and behold, what does he get in his foot? Some foreign object, let's say a thorn. And so the father has to take out a scalpel, do whatever he has to do, cut out the thorn. And the child is screaming at this point. Now, the father is afraid of the thorn. The child is afraid of the scalpel. Since the thorn threat didn't work last time, the father has to say, don't run around barefoot or I'm going to have to cut your foot with the scalpel. The sc- that is already the healing part, but the child doesn't get it. So that's what stops him from doing the sin. Hashem says, no, I want your fear to be like my fear. Fear the sin. The sin is the scariest part. The sin is the disconnection. I want you to fear disconnection. And that's what true fear of Hashem is. Fear of the basic level, just fear of rebelling against Him. Okay, so that was one thing that we were looking at. And that is, yes, there's such a thing as being trained in fear. That's how all training starts out with. That's normal. That's appropriate. That's where we start. Is that where it ends? No. Our experience has to grow. We have to keep coming around as we work through progresses progressive stages of awareness and our consciousness grows we are exposed to higher levels and we're expected to serve at a higher level now here is something incredible that the Rebbe talks about when saying that serving out of habit is considered shalai lishma, not for its own sake if you look at the words of the Alter Rebbe he says meaning one serves God out of a habit acquired in his youth having been trained and taught by his father and teacher to fear God and serve him. This is very different than someone who trained and taught, or I don't know, trained themselves. 
If someone did teshuva, and we should all be bali tshuva, the education that we did ha- had as children was supposed to get us somewhere to start serving. But as we grow older, we need to become aware of Hashem. We need to become of, aware of our service of Him. We need to love Him. We need to fear Him. If we now became cognizant of the way we serve Hashem, we said, I'm doing this out of love for Him, and a person now trained their own self, as it were, it's possible that their initial decision to serve Hashem can become a force that elevates their mitzvahs even when sometimes they didn't have that awareness. And that is similar to a concept we're going to visit at the end of the chapter where a prayer can be brought up high by other prayers, united together and brought up high by a prayer that was done without intention can be elevated by a prayer that was done with intention. And the same thing here. A person who trained themselves, who had this initial consciousness that I'm serving Hashem, I love Hashem, I want to attach to Him, I fear Hashem, I never want to be separated from Him. If they themselves train themselves in order to have that motivation, then that can be a force that elevates their mitzvahs. And that is very exciting and very powerful. The Rebbe says, it could also just be that because that's the normal way. The normal way is we get trained from youth. But still, it's very nice to hear that this is a, a plausible interpretation that if someone chooses to serve Hashem on their own and they themselves made that emotional connection, then it can be a powerful force that elevates their mitzvahs even when they didn't necessarily have intention. Okay, so coming back to the text. So this applies even if a person is just serving Hashem out of habit, just because this is what he acquired in his youth, youth, having been trained by his father and teacher to serve Hashem and to fear him. But he does not really do it for his own sake. Now the author was going to explain to us, how do we define for its own sake? For it is impossible to serve God truly lishma, without arousing was natural fear and love at least. By bringing them out of the, from the concealment of the heart into the revelation, at least in the mind and the latency of the heart. You want it to be lishma, you want it to be for its own sake, it can't be out of habit. There has to be some level of awareness of your relationship with Hashem here. If you did not pull that love that you have naturally in your heart, at least into your mind and somewhere hidden in your heart, it can't be considered lishma. Because it's not about if you have love for Hashem. Guess what? Every single Jewish person loves Hashem. That is without question. It wasn't like, when, were you, when you were doing the mitzvah, did you love Hashem? That's a flat out answer. Yes, of course. There's not a Jew who doesn't love Hashem. There's Jews who say they don't. There's Jews who say they don't believe in him. Do they love him? Do they believe in him? Every Jew does. The question is, did this love that they have power their mitzvah? Did they bring it into their awareness so that they know, either at the very basic level, I'm someone who never wants to be separated from Hashem. I'm a Jew. A Jew would die rather than be torn away from Hashem. And that's me. And out of that awareness, they go attached through a mitzvah. Just that basic of awareness. I'm doing this for Hashem. That's enough. It doesn't have to be something very high, but it has to be the minimal. But just having it there as it was always, not bringing it out into the open on some level, 
and it can't be lishma. That's not considered lishma. Habit is not enough. If one cannot arouse his natural love of God to the point where it's actually felt in the heart, he must try, as discussed above, to arouse it at least so that it will be felt in the conscious mind and the substratum of the heart. Even this low-level arousal can produce a will and resolve to study the Torah and fulfill the mitzvot. Thus, the resulting divine service contains, at least to some degree, the force and kavana of his natural love, since it was this love that created the resolve, which he is now implementing. If, however, one does not produce even this minimal level of arousal, the love, although naturally found in his heart, has no bearing on his divine service, and he cannot, therefore, do this service lishma for its own sake. So in order for to be lishma, he has to pull out the love that he has and bring it into his consciousness to do the mitzvah. The mitzvah has to be propelled by this love. It's not that you just have the love. The love has to be what's powering the mitzvah. My husband took the kids on Miftayim this Friday. They went to put tefillin on people and they were asking people if they're Jewish. And this one guy said, oh, I used to be. So my husband said, well, what does that mean? And he said, oh, now I'm an atheist. So my husband told him this joke. There was this atheist Jewish guy and he wanted his kid to get a really good education. So he wants to send him to private school, but Jewish private school completely out of the question. So where does he send him? He sends him to a Catholic school, gets his kid dressed up in a uniform. Parents send the kid off to school. Bye. Have a great day. Do good learning. The kid comes home and the father is so excited. How was your first day of school? Tell me what you learned. He wants to hear about the math and the science. And the kid starts talking about all the religious stuff that he learned at school. And the father is furious. Suddenly he's quiet and he's white and shaking. And he says to the kid, listen, son, I'm going to tell you this once and I'm never going to say it again. Don't ever forget this. There is only one God. And in that one God, we don't believe. And you know what? When the guy heard the story, the joke, he said, you know, that's so true. I'm not going to put tefillin on today, but the next time someone asks me to put on tefillin, I'm going to do it. And that just proves the point. There's no such thing as a Jew who doesn't believe in God. There's no such thing as a Jew that doesn't love and fear Hashem. The question is, does he take that love, that fear that he has, and use it to power his mitzvah? Does he take his deep inner core and connect it with his actions so that it becomes a seamless experience and then the mitzvah now radiates its true divine essence. If not, if it's done on a very minimal level, that's enough. But if it's not done at all, where he doesn't even think about it, and it's just by rote, that is not considered lishma. For just as one does not do something for his fellow to carry out his friend's will unless he loves him or fears him. So if you're going to do something for someone else, it's going to be for one of two reasons. Either you love them and you want to please them, make them happy, or you're afraid of them, so you're going to do what they ask of you. If it's going to be bishvil chaveray for the sake of your fellow, then it's going to be either out of fear or out of love. You can do something to your fellow and not have fear and love of your fellow, but then the motive is going to be selfish for yourself. So you may do something for your fellow because it benefits you. But if you're doing it for your fellow for your fellow, it's going to be either for love or for fear. 
Like, you know, the story of the Katskareba where he sees a young man eating fish and he says to him, young man, why are you eating the fish? And he said, what do you mean? Why am I eating fish? I'm eating fish because I love fish. And he said, really, is it because you love fish that you kill the fish and cook the fish and then are consuming the fish? No, 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 no. You don't love the fish. You love yourself. And that's why you're eating fish. So is there love? Yes, there's love. But love for who? If it's not no love for your fellow, it can't be for your fellow. It could be love for yourself and then you're doing it for yourself. But if it's truly done for your fellow, it's for one of two reasons. Either you love your fellow or you fear your fellow. Guess what? Same thing when it comes to our relationship with Hashem. And that's what the author is now going to say. So too, is it impossible to truly act for God's sake solely in order to carry out his will? Unless he remembers and arouses his love and fear of God to some degree in his mind, thought, and the latent level of his heart at least, if he cannot arouse these emotions openly in his heart. One who observes the mitzvot out of habit, however, lacking even this minimal arousal of love, cannot be described as serving God for his sake, even though his performance is impelled by no ulterior motive. So in order for it to be for its own sake, habit is not enough. There has to be some level of love and fear involved. So the intention here is we're doing this for Hashem solely to carry out his will. So now it seems like all you really need is love. Can you do something for your friend out of love and not out of fear? You can. So the same thing here too. If you have love, you can do something solely for the sake of Hashem. And that should be enough to be considered lishma. But if we look at the words of the Zaihar, the Zaihar said that without fear and love, it doesn't rise above. So why would fear be necessary? It seems like love is enough. You want to do something for Hashem. You want to bring him satisfaction. You want to make Hashem happy. You love him so much you want to attach to him. Love is enough. And indeed, love is enough in order to be considered lishma, but it lacks something important. Also, love by itself is not called by the name of serving God. So love by itself is considered for Hashem, but it's not considered serving Hashem. And the altar was going to say, Without at least the lower level of fear, which is hidden in the heart of every Jew, as will be explained below, and that's going to be in chapter 41. So love is for Hashem is for the sake of Hashem. But is it called service of Hashem? It's not called service. In order for it to be called service, it ha- there has to be at least a minimal level of fear that one that's hidden in our heart. Now, let's look at the way a child who does something for their parent and a servant who does something for their master. The word servant, eved, is from the same word of avoda, service. In order for something to be called service, there has to be putting yourself aside. That means I may want something else, I may not be in the mood, I may have my own agenda, but whatever it is, I'm putting myself aside right now. This is a humbling feeling of nullification, putting yourself out of the way and serving Hashem. Love, on the other hand, when you really love someone, then you be be doing all these things and you get the greatest pleasure. 
you're doing something because you love them and you want to give them pleasure. But while you're giving them pleasure, you're giving yourself pleasure because you love them so much. It's what you want to do. It's like those people who say, I never worked a day in my life because I love what I do. Yeah, it's not called work if you love it. If you have to put yourself aside, if you have to become humble for a moment and say, it's not about me, it's about Hashem. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what does Hashem want? If you can't do that, if you're not doing that, that's not called service. And while it is considered lishma, it cannot rise above without fear too. And these are the words of the Zahar. Without fear and love, it cannot rise above. So love is very important. Love is the motivating factor. Love is what causes us to want to fulfill Hashem's will. It's the active motivation here. But there also has to be some element of fear so that this is called service. Divine service connotes the relationship of a servant to his master, whom he serves chiefly out of fear, unlike a child who carries out his father's wishes mainly because he loves him. When one performs a mitzvah out of the love of God alone, without fear of him, he is indeed acting for God's sake, but he is not serving him. Okay, so until now, we looked at what is the problem with serving out of habit? Why doesn't this rise up above? It's not considered for its own sake. It's not considered to be for the sake of Hashem unless there is a basic element of love and fear. What was missing there was that it was lacking the intentions for the sake of Hashem. The service itself was as if neutral. But now we're going to look at what happens when someone has bad intentions, when they're doing the right thing. What happens if someone is serving for an ulterior motive? What happens to their Torah and their mitzvah? However, when one engages in divine service explicitly not lishma, but for an ulterior motive of self-glorification, for example, in order to become a Torah scholar and the like, and this motive, which is derived from Klipat Noga, clothes itself in his Torah study. And the Torah studied for this motive is in a state of exile within the Klipa. So until now, we were looking at somebody who just did it out of habit. This is what I do. It's normal. It's natural. I'm trained that way. I do mitzvahs, of course. I... I study Torah, of course, but I wasn't thinking that this is because I love Hashem. I wasn't thinking that I'm doing this for Him. That doesn't rise above. But what happens if someone actually has an ulterior motive? The problem with this scenario before was that the intention litshma for its sake wasn't there. It was lacking the intention, but not that there was a contrary intention. Here, there is a contrary intention. We have to remember there's one truth. And that truth is ein oid milvadai. There is nothing else besides Hashem. When we expose that truth completely and this world manifests that, Mashiach will be here. This world will become to its ultimate state where this world manifests its divine core that there's nothing else besides Hashem. That's the ultimate truth. A person who has a self-serving motive here, what happens is they are acting contrary to the truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem. They're saying, there's me. I am in existence for myself. I have an ego. And what is their motive that the Alter Rebbe brings as an example to be a Torah scholar? Hey, what's wrong with being a Torah scholar? Aren't we supposed to be a Torah scholar? 
course we're supposed to be a Torah scholar. We have a mitzvah to study Torah, and besides the mitzvah to study Torah, we have the mitzvah to know the Torah. We have to study it, and we also have to know it. It has to be something that's a part of us. That is so important. What's the problem with someone studying to be a Torah scholar is this is someone who is not learning because of the mitzvah to know Torah. He's not learning because of the mitzvah to study Torah. He's learning because he has a personal interest of becoming a more complete person. He has a personal interest of being someone who is very well versed in everything. He wants to be scholarly. This is a self-serving interest. And it sounds like what could be wrong with that? Of course, we're supposed to be Torah scholar. The point is over here, there can't be an ulterior motive. And if somebody does have an ulterior motive when serving Hashem, so they're not studying Torah in order to serve Hashem, they're studying Torah in order to serve themselves, that becomes a problem. And what happens? The Torah then becomes dragged down into the klipa. And now it's in exile. So let's review the idea of klipa so we understand. You know, when it comes to halacha, there's what you have to do, what you're not allowed to do, and then rishas, optional, you want to do it, you could do it, you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it, your choice. When we're looking at things through the sharp lens of Kabbalah, it comes out that there's only two sides. It's either Sad HaKadusha, the side of holiness, or the other side, which has no name for itself, other than it's just the other side, it's not holy. Or it does have a, a, a name for itself, but again, it's its relationship to holiness, which is Klipa. Klipa means a shell. It's something which hides what's truly holy and divine inside of itself. So when it comes to Klipa, there are four kinds of klipas. Three of them are lumped together as being completely impure and unrectifiable. And then there's another kind of klipa, and that's called klipa snega, the luminescent klipa, the klipa that could be rectified and elevated to holiness. So somebody who's learning with the ulterior motive of becoming a Talmud Chacham, of becoming a more complete person, a more consummate person, more well-developed, scholarly his intentions are not evil. He's not doing something terrible. He's just losing focus of the sight that there's nothing else before besides Hashem. And the reason why I'm doing this, the reason why I study Torah, is to become close to him. In fact, Rabbi Chaim Vital quotes his teacher, the Arizal, that when you study Torah, your intent should be in order to bind your soul to Hashem. That should be your intention in studying Torah. If the person lacks that intention, he's not thinking about Hashem when he studies Torah. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking, I want to be a greater, greater scholar. I want to be well-versed in all of this. It's not a bad intention. He's not necessarily looking to become famous or honorable. He's just looking for more personal completion. So where does his Torah become enclosed then? It becomes enclosed in the rectifiable klipa, the klipa that has elements of good in it, and could be elevated to holiness. And when we say that the Torah becomes exiled, we have to remember the Torah itself never becomes corrupted, never becomes impure, never becomes tainted. It's not that the Torah became tainted, God forbid. The Talmud says, The words of Torah never contract impurity. 
It's not that the Torah is contracting impurity, God forbid. It's that, instead, it's that the nature of the Torah becomes hidden. So he studies Torah, and in the optimum situation, you can see that the Torah that he studies is divine, and it's completely blatant that this Torah is for the sake of Hashem. In his situation, you can't see that. So the Torah becomes hidden, and it becomes exiled within the klipa. What happens when something holy becomes exiled within the klipa is that it actually lends force to the klipa, God forbid. And let's look at the example of this person who's becoming egotistical because he studied so much Torah. If he wouldn't have studied that much Torah, he wouldn't have been so egotistical. So that means that the Torah, as if, is generating more power to his problem of having an ego. So here, temporarily, the Torah that he studied, not just for no motivation, but he has a contrary motivation. The motivation should be, this is only for the sake of Hashem. The, the place of neutral where there was no meditation is, this is what I'm used to, this is what I do. But the contrary motivation is me, this is for me. I want to become better developed. That's me. And that's contrary to the truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem. What happens to that Torah then? It becomes dragged down within the klipa of Noga. And now it becomes in a state of exile. Now, it's very important to note, because I don't want to end class on this note and then get the wrong message, God forbid. And that is no matter how you study the Torah, you keep studying the Torah. This is something that we're going to visit next class. And the bottom line is you keep studying Torah, you keep doing mitzvahs. And if somebody is a wicked person, the Torah that they study, the mitzvahs that they do temporarily lend power to the forces of evil. And nevertheless, despite that fact, our sages said a person should always study Torah and always do the mitzvahs because out of doing it not for its own sake, eventually he will come to do it for its own sake. And every single time we do Torah and study Torah and every single time we do a mitzvah, that ha act, that Torah study remains inherently holy. It never becomes corrupted. So even if there were evil intentions, then it becomes chained. But at a certain point, it will be released. And the act that they did, which is a holy act, will retain its holiness and manifest its holiness. So it's an investment. No matter where you're at, you keep studying Torah, you keep doing mitzvahs, even if your intentions could be better. There is never a reason to stop studying Torah and never a reason to stop engaging in mitzvot. So let me wrap up what we said until now. And that is we were looking at someone who does not have love and fear when doing a mitzvah, does not have love and fear when studying Torah. Why? Because this is what they're used to. This is the way they were trained. This is what their father taught them. This is what their teacher taught them. They just act out of habit. Person acts that way. It's not considered lishma for its sake. Why? Because you can never do something for someone else without either love or fear. That's how it is in human relationships. That's how it is with our relationship with Hashem too. If there's not at least a basic level of fear, a basic level of love, it can't be for the sake of Hashem. You can't call that lishma. If it's not lishma, it cannot rise above to the higher worlds. Now we're looking at a more serious situation. What if a person studies Torah? What if a person does a mitzvah for an ulterior motive? There's something about the self involved. They're not thinking about Hashem when they do the Torah mitzvahs. They're doing it because they're thinking about himself. 
Okay, so not only doesn't the Torah and mitzvahs rise above to become incorporated within the tense of race and become united with Hashem himself, but actually they be- the Torah becomes chained within the klipa. And now it's in a state of exile. So that's going to be visited uh, at length next class. And next class, I'm hoping to finish the chapter by the Hashem. So we're going to do this. <laughs> Thank you everyone for coming. And I'm opening up now for questions.